Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster, I, especially when I'm not sick on account of getting the flu and ridiculous allergies. I, I do various things at Freethink at an exceptionally high level. And I'm joined by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, Michael Moynihan, Vice News. Gentlemen, it's exciting to, to be with you all again. Um, I believe this is, this is among our first Substack fifth column journeys. Um, so I think this it's is our first great. official one. Yeah. yeah. And you know what we're doing for that first official one? What's that? Mm, yes <laughs> you promised her you wouldn't do that no i love the song i mean it's an amazing it, it song was, it, the text in the restraining order was very specific well yes, look yes. it didn't say anything about about uh video conferencing from <laughs> the midwest well well we we have plenty of stuff that we will get into later we're going to talk inflation the the markets in turmoil the crypto markets exploding um the the democrats desperate attempt to try not yeah. some sort of abortion protections uh, but before we get there we are going to have a conversation about a glorious piece that i read in the atlantic this week um, the, the title of which was The ACLU Has Lost Its Way. And the author of that very fine piece, Laura Bazelon, the professor, a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law, where she directs a, a criminal and juvenile justice law and racial justice clinic. Um, this, this phenomenal piece was excoriating the ACLU for its rather determined effort to, to recast itself as just essentially another craven activist organization that is guided by politics, culture war, idiocy, and social justice excesses. Um, those are my words, not hers. So <laughs> I'll shut definitely up. Definitely not Laura Bazelon's words. Well, first of all, gentlemen, it's really an honor, and I'm so glad that we could all be talking to each other and that I can be your inaugural Substack podcast guest. It's a big it's responsibility, a big and I'm yes. going to do the best I can to live yes. up to it, <laughs> despite the <laughs> lies about the joys of singing Avalon that, yes. were, that were fed to song. me. Yeah. A mediocre professor, but fantastic. <laughs> I wanted Camille to introduce me as the professor at the University yes. of San Francisco. Yeah. Like there weren't any other ones, just me holding on the fort. But to be clear, <laughs> there's another great Bazelon, and that's your sister, Emily Bazelon, not to be confused, because there's so much talent in the Bazelon family that it's embarrassing. Oh, there's to, four Bazelon sisters. Oh in wow. Fact. Wow. You yes. like the Mitfords the without Mitfords, the fascism. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> It's so true. Um, so where to begin with the ACLU? I mean, my dissatisfaction with them goes back a couple of years to their position on, on Title IX, actually, because I don't know if yeah. you all remember this, but under the Obama administration, they rolled out some guidelines called the Dear Colleague Letter, mm -hmm. and those purported to be guidance, but they were actually de facto mandatory, and they were basically telling schools to strip away, in my opinion, due process rights for people who were facing sexual assault allegations on campus. And why do I feel that way? Because one of the things we do in my clinic is we represent students who've been accused and they're students of color who don't have any money who are facing suspension expulsion on the receiving end of these Title IX allegations. And I've been through the system under 
the Obama guidelines. And to be clear, I voted for Obama twice and I would have voted for him a third time, just like the dad in Get Out. But these <laughs> guidelines really for me were a bridge too far. Don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and so they really were uh, problematic from anybody who cared about a due process perspective. And so Unfortunately, the Trump administration had one good idea, in my opinion, and that was to roll them back and replace them with with pretty much common sense things like, hey, you have the right to cross-examine, you have the right to see the evidence against you, you know, sort of basic constitutional things that they brought back so Mm -hmm. that people wouldn't be thrown out of school based on a bare accusation with no proof. And the ACLU's response to that was to send out this really angry tweet thread saying, this is going to hurt survivors and this is bad for due process. And when I read it, I kind of couldn't believe that it was the ACLU who was tweeting this out because as you probably know, they're supposed to be about the presumption of innocence and defending people no matter who they are or what the accusation is. And that tweet has never been walked back. They sort of quietly came out in support of the Trump guidelines, which became regulations later on. But as far as all their followers are concerned, they're not. And so that was one example of where I started feeling like, okay, I've contributed to this organization. I believe in their principles, but I don't really feel like they're standing up for them. It seems like they're moving towards this place of like reflexively embracing these very hard left beliefs. And it's uncomfortable for me to say that to you because I'm very far left, but I have seen too many of my clients get, there's no polite way to say this, completely fucked over Hmm. by processes that are kangaroo courts, except it's the kangaroo and no court. And to have the ACLU sort of stridently come out in that way, to me, was bizarre. And then since then, there have been a number of other things. And I feel like one way of thinking about it is, what cases are they not taking? And I'm sure you all read with great interest, Michael Powell's piece in 2021 about the ACLU. It was very in-depth. And, you know, he makes the point that they sit out the free speech issues on campus. Mm -hmm. Like, does this person have a right to come and not be shouted down? Does this person have a right to present their views without, you know, a complete eruption? And these are the kinds of issues that are roiling us all and, and, and igniting the culture war. And the ACLU, the bastion of free speech, is nowhere to be found when it comes to any of that. So I was sort of like quietly stewing and then the Amber Heard Johnny Depp thing happened, and I lost it. <laughs> it took, took, so because that's our favorite story for some reason. Yeah. Camille has did, just turned on the television. He's like, "This is the best story we've ever." Not just had to me, launch Moynihan. You are super into I, it too. I, I'm very, very into it. Yeah. Um, I also primarily because she was in that really, really awful adaptation of Martin Amos's incredible novel, London Fields, which mm-hmm. is the worst thing I've ever seen. But um, this is the quote. I just, because I went back to look for it on the Title IX thing when Betsy DeVos came out with this with this uh, kind of corrective to the Dear Colleague stuff. This was the stuff, this is the actual sentence that shocked me, that uh, the DeVos uh, guidelines promotes an unfair process inappropriately favoring the accused what which absolutely stunned me i was like i'm sorry what yeah i mean i I know that maybe i have a kind of ira glasser nadine strassen kind of vision of the aclu and the kind of skokie vision of aclu um you know and then i think the second for me the next one was the hideousness that happened in charlottesville and all these Mm -hmm. fascists that went wild 
and ended up killing somebody um, and other violence too. It's often forgotten about there's, you know, like roiling street battles too, like it's 1932 in Berlin. And they defended the, and tried to get that permit in Charlottesville. And then afterwards walked that back and said they would no longer support people, um, free speech causes where quote, the values are contrary to our values, which is in direct opposition to the Skokie um, the Frank Collin case in, in Skokie, Illinois, which, as if people don't know that, was a um, largely Jewish neighborhood, uh, which, had, which had a lot of Holocaust survivors. And this is, a, you know, a, what, 40 plus years ago. So people that are very, very close to the Holocaust, um, you know, refugees from Europe. And they defended them. And that, that march, by the way, never happened. It never actually, I mean, they, they tried to have it happen, but, <laughs> but it, it collapsed because it's a bunch of psychopathic Nazis. Um, so, yeah, those things... What is the deal with, with this? Because it seems to me, when I've talked to people about this, there's some kind of regional split here, isn't there? That there's some ACLU chapters who are m much more wedded to the kind of Ira Glasser vision of the ACLU and free speech, um, even for, for those whose speech we abhor. And then there's another kind of ACLU that's emerged, which seems to be the more dominant one now. I think you're right about that. And I think the dominant ACLU is the national project and, and the project in New York. They think it's the people who have all the power and have the bully pulpit and also have control over their Twitter feed, which is no small thing when you think they almost have about 2 million followers. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so you're right. There are splinter groups who are still carrying out that old school vision. But in the main, I think they've been captured. And I don't think if you have any doubts, you could look any further than what they did in the Amber Heard Johnny Depp case. And I will say one thing about the sort of post-Charlottesville corrective that they did, which to me was the worst thing that they did. They issued these new guidelines to their lawyers. And as you say, they talked about our values. And they said to their lawyers, if you do take a case and you represent a client who doesn't share, quote, our values, end quote, then you need to do everything you can to denounce that client in the public square. You need to write an op-ed. You need to protest. You need to go to every available public forum mm. and talk about how repellent those views are and how you don't share them. And as a criminal defense attorney, I found that shocking and repulsive and absolutely disgusting. The idea that I would represent a client in court and then go out and tell everybody what a piece of shit I thought they were <laughs> is an anathema. It is unethical. That's it incredible. is contradictory to my primary responsibility, which is to be their zealous advocate. I don't understand how a 100-year-old civil rights organization could be telling its lawyers to behave that way. It's shocking. It's also something that conservatives did quite a bit in the past. And I... I think on this podcast have, have denounced conservatives for doing this, particularly with Hillary Clinton. There was always this idea, well, she defended the Black Panthers and the Panther 21 in New Haven. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, so what? Yeah. I mean, they need defense and that's her that's her her job. And, you know, it, it doesn't mean she believes this, but she shouldn't come have to come out and say that. That I don't. It's absurd. It's absurd. Like, why would anybody need to make that clarification? And it's interesting, you know, talked about the DeVos guidelines and with, after they came out, I wrote this op-ed in the New York Times that was called something like I'm a feminist and Democrat and I support these divorce guidelines. And you can imagine what that kind of response engendered. <laughs> and among the other hatred I got on Twitter was Laura Bazelon defended this guy who was convicted of pimping. Laura Bazelon defended a bank robber. Mm. I'm like, yeah, of course I did. I'm a federal public defender. Those were my clients. That's the job. Fuck off. <laughs> and you want me to apologize for that? Or you think that like, Bizarre. because I did that, I'm them? It's, it's outrageous. And so this idea that you would even feel the need to walk out in public and separate yourself from your client when that should be 
common sense and it's completely disloyal to throw them under the bus. I just feel like if someone who worked for me did that, I would fire them. I, I, I think about kind of the, the cultural, the cultural moment that preceded the one that we're in now and a lot of like representations of lawyers and even kind of the popular perception of the ACLU. And I think about a film like The People versus Larry Flint, where it is very obvious, like the, the protagonist in this story is this seedy character who, you know, you may not like him, you may not like the smut that he produces, but it's this is America. Gross. And yeah. defending the guilty, presuming their innocence. It felt like there was an understanding of that, but is that shifting? Do you think that the public's perception of things has changed as well? Or is it just inside of certain kinds of elite institutions in places like the ACLU where there is a new approach and perhaps a, a devaluing of the need for that kind of apolitical defense of civil liberties? That's a great question. And it's hard for me to answer because I feel like I've had this kind of narrow, sheltered, liberal East Coast existence. So what I would say is I was felt as if the people who were judging me for who my clients were, were the people in, in red America or were sort of the average ordinary citizen who were like, you know, your clients are disgusting and guilty and should be locked up as quickly as possible. How could you possibly represent that person? That was always sort of my stereotype in my head, having never actually interacted with them. But that's what I thought they perceived me as doing. But now my perception is that that sort of scandalized attitude and that horror is held by people at the ACLU. Mm. And that is deeply disturbing to me because I have always thought of them as sort of the public defender for civil liberties. Mm -hmm. I know there isn't such a thing because you don't have the right civilly to a lawyer. But if you did, wouldn't you think that it would be the ACLU in the same way that you have a right to a lawyer when you're charged with a criminal offense? And so to feel like it's those people that hold you and your zealous defense of unpopular people in contempt is to feel sort of like cast out of your own community in a way that's really upsetting. I'm sure that you've re uh, heard a lot from ACLU people in the last week. Um, also previously when you wrote about the DeVos um, uh, guidelines. Um, what's your sense of the causation here in the organization itself. I have a very good friend who worked and then left kind of uh, in disgust uh, from ACLU um, and uh, his or her uh, idea about what went wrong uh, was, uh, was tied up with the Hillary Clinton campaign that a lot of on the senior management level, a lot of really kind of expressly political people who were just sort of institutional Democrats came over and in various hinge points said, hey, look, this we're on this team over here, and that's going to affect the way that we look at things. And then you also have, and we see this in a lot of cultural institutions, in media especially, um, just, you know, the 25-year-olds who are coming out um, are have a different set of values than the Michael Powells of the world from the New York Times, who writes really great stuff about civil liberties, um, uh, and he's from an older generation. So in, in your sense, uh, how much it, of it is like woke 25-year-olds, my word, not yours, on how much of it is like uh, actually kind of boring but powerful Democratic type people? I would put it into two different parts. I think something fundamental happened to them after 2016 because they became the front of the Trump resistance. And they did incredible litigation to, for example, protect immigrant rights, to protect LGBT, LGBT. Oh my God, I can't talk. Just, Sorry, it's been... It's okay. Just like, you, <laughs> you know Listeners, it's been a long day. Yeah. It's yeah. been a long day. Just say LGBTQ abbreviation. LGBTQ rights. 
<laughs> to defend women's rights. You know, I think there was this sense that we were in real peril and it was, a, it was correct. And then they were able to raise a tremendous amount of money. They went from a budget of $100 million to $300 million annually Jesus. during those years. And it was because they appealed with such fervor to those causes. But I think as a result of that, they lost their status as an apolitical institution. They actually became sort of overtly political. And that was because they became increasingly dependent on these donors who wanted to hear a very particular kind of message from them and didn't want to see or hear about the other parts of the things that they were supposed to be doing, like defending the people who were against all of those causes. So I think it's a combination of that kind of donor mission capture plus being infused by this younger generation of people who came to work there whose feeling is that there are certain kinds of speech that's that are that's violence mm. and that is completely of course antithetical to this idea of nazis marching on skokie ira blaster etc right that there's really no such thing i mean there could be speech that can can incite violence right under the supreme court doctrine but this was an idea that no there's certain speech that even if it isn't inherently dangerous, isn't entitled to any kind of protection because it's inherently bigoted, it's inherently racist, it's inherently anti-take your progressive cause. And so I think it's a combination of those two things. What makes it uncomfortable for me is that I am a progressive. So when they dump a bunch of money into trying to elect Stacey Abrams as the governor of Georgia, I mean, I wanted her to win. I think Brian Kemp is horrible. When they dumped a bunch of money- $800,000 they put in for one ad. One ad when they dumped a million dollars into opposing Brett Kavanaugh. I don't want Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. I wish he wasn't there. I mean, one one result of that is that, you know, Roe was basically gone. And yet, I don't think they should be doing that. That's not their job. I don't look to them to be politicians. I don't look to them to take those stances. They're not supposed to do that. We have other organizations and institutions that are political. That's not their role. And yet they've morphed into that. I feel like they've almost become like this public justice, social services conglomerate where they want to be this like cafeteria of options where they're serving every single social justice cause. And that's not how they were designed. And these causes are not always aligned with each other. As a progressive, does it worry you in some ways that these, these visions and missions don't combine because so many of them do view speech in the way that you just described, which is speech as violence. And as a progressive I, of a different generation, I think we're probably the same generation, uh, that was not something that was ever really discussed. I mean, it was debate was met with vigorous counter debate. And of course, there were the things there people were being kind of mow mowed on campus, but it was pretty rare, actually. I mean, I mean, we I, I remember Farrakhan coming to campus and there were protests, but I, the only objection people had was the amount of money that the the um, university spent on the security, which was an, a staggering amount for the time. But, you know, it's, it's, it strikes me as odd that, you know, when you have these conversations about Elon Musk, for instance, and, you know, I don't really care about Trump being on Twitter or half of these things. I mean, I think that he's a bozo. The Twitter account was, I think in some ways, what convinced a lot of people that he was a bozo. <laughs> it actually had, it had an effect that people didn't even, didn't even think of because they think that, you know, you're exposed to that stuff and you're kind of like their grandparents and watching Fox mm -hmm. News, they're just kind of hypnotized by it. But, you know, the conversation now, I'm kind of just, you know, weirded out by the fact that it seems to be defaulting 
in, you know, I'm sorry to, to pin it on the people on your side of the aisle, but it seems in the, in the progressive side of the aisle, there's so much that says, you know, we really can't have Elon Musk take this over. We're fine with Jeff Bezos taking over the Washington Post. It's not billionaires we care about. It's billionaires saying that they're, you know, a radical uh, free speech advocate. And what was the New York Times headline? Did we, we, I think we sent this around. Or there was a, there was a, a passage. AP headline today or AP Twitter uh, tweet today. Yeah. Uh, it's saying uh, basically like uh, Elon Musk uh, claims he's a champion of free speech, but he's criticized people on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it just seems that the idea of this thing <laughs> we don't really understand anymore. It's like, I don't like the speech of half the people that Elon Musk would let back onto Twitter, but that is life. That is why I'm on Twitter. Mm -hmm. The only reason I know these people have bad ideas is because I read their bad ideas on Twitter, like Richard Spencer and these psychopaths. Who in now, fairness, by the way, is is like a like a pro NATO guy now. He's sure. through his transformation. Uh, he's still ACLU, on Twitter, by the way. ACLU did come out today, um, uh, like in qualified support of um, of uh, Trump coming back on Twitter. Oh, is that right? Out, uh, well, Elon Musk is also the ACLU's biggest donor. Yes. By an exponential huh. margin, which and I feel like also Amber makes this, <laughs> It does. And I and can we pause on Amber Heard for a second? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say about this, but here's one thing. Kind of, this is my gender justice volley back to your free speech volley, which is this. Sure. I mean, okay, so, so Amber Heard in 2018 makes some accusations against Johnny Depp, right, that he committed do domestic violence against her. And these are accusations. They, they're not proven in a court of law. The ACLU, we don't know why, decides that she, this, this white, wealthy, entitled actress, is going to be the face of gender violence for the ACLU. And so they approach her and they pitch the Washington Post and they send the Post an email that says, as you know, Amber Heard has been beaten by her husband, Johnny Depp. As you know. This is just in The Guardian's reporting about the trial, which is now unfolding like a slow motion car accident. And that to me is just sort of astounding because, again, we are talking about an organization that's supposed to believe in the presumption of innocence and we're talking about unproven allegations. We're also talking about a Me Too movement that has been characterized by these figureheads who are these white, wealthy actresses. And one would think that an organization like the ACLU would be interested in maybe trying to diversify that and maybe lift up some marginalized people, maybe shine the spotlight on women who don't have millions of dollars and who actually have proven that they are victims of intimate partner violence and maybe showcasing them. But oh no, it looks like a quid pro quo where what they do is they ghostwrite this op-ed where she says, I am the face of gender violence as a public figure. And in exchange, they get $3.5 million. I'm not sure what dollar for word count that is, but I can tell you it's a fuckload more than I've ever made. It's, it's a little more than I get paid. And she didn't even have to write it. And yeah. she becomes yeah. their gender violence ambassador. I mean, this is gross and wrong on so many levels. It's, it's morally and ethically bankrupt. It's wrong. It's also this rush to sort of, I guess chime in on and be part of what they see as this me too movement by what latching on to amber heard and then this op-ed becomes the centerpiece it's the launching pad for this defamation lawsuit and so we've watched over the past couple of weeks these two incredibly wealthy entitled narcissistic people rip each other apart with one just disgusting allegation after another. And at the root of it is the ACLU with their $3.5 million op-ed. I just don't know 
how to square that with a public interest organization. Which she didn't even pay them, right? No, she stiffed them. She stiffed them for the money and then they collected it from Johnny Mm. Depp and Elon Musk. Although she still owes them them over a million dollars. And when she got the $7 million settlement from Johnny Depp after the divorce, she said, I'm giving half of it to the ACLU and half of it to the, I think it's like the LA Children's Hospital. I don't know if the Children's Hospital got paid, but 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 the ACLU sure didn't, and she's still there as their ambassador on their website. Well, Laura, I, I you mean you've been with us for a bit, and I know you've got a really early flight tomorrow. Um, and I agree with a, a... Camille. That's a nice way of you saying no, no, not at all. I, I'm saying I'd, I'd <laughs> like to ask you one more question, if I if I may. We we had a difficult time getting started. The other people don't know that, but yeah, we're yeah. already late into yeah. the night. Um, so Laura's a, a champ for really sticking in sticking it out with us. Um, but I agree with so much of what you said. But I, I also have a bit of a disagreement or at least a concern of my own about the the sort of framing of specific issues and the, the framing of our advocacy with respect to kind of identity related things um, or the kind of fashionable, the, the newly fashionable level of concern um, that people have for issues of equity, whether it be racial or gender equity. And I saw a ACLU tweet today about abortion. And Mm. they were tweeting about the abortion ban disparities and how it sort of disproportionately harms abortion bans disproportionately harm black, indigenous and other people of color, the LGBT community, immigrants, young people, those working to make ends meet people with disabilities, LGBT. (laughs) And I and I look at that. And I wonder to myself, not all the 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 call here is tell tell your senator it's time to defend abortion access. Vote yes on the the current bill that was being considered, which was not the the compromise piece that had been drafted by two Republicans that perhaps somewhat imperfectly, but in a very material way, tried to actually codify in law Roe, which is you know a particular approach to safeguarding abortion rights in this country, one that is probably in line with what most Americans are in favor of, and instead went whole hog and kind of pushed for this other thing in a way that, that kind of seemed a bit more performative, as if it's like kind of catering to uh, uh, the midterm elections and giving Democrats an issue that they could perhaps run on since you know, the economy is not doing great and et cetera, et cetera. But the specific question I'm asking here to, to, to narrow this is, is, is there not good reason to be concerned about the way that kind of the identity politics stuff pollutes some of our efforts? Like I would, I would worry about the ACLU, even if all of the other things were improved, but they were making selections about who they had as spokespeople on the basis of race. Hmm. And I'd worry about it for precisely the same reason that I'm not at all surprised uh, that there hasn't been a great deal accomplished at the federal level on civil on um, uh, criminal justice reform after the explosive summer of 2020, when there was so much attention on these issues. Um, because again, it was a similar issue where they weren't talking about concrete policy reforms or specific opportunities for kind of these these pragmatic improvements that we could that they could get. And to the extent they were talking about it, it was all smothered in racial politics, and you know that obviously has won the day and has had a durable impact on the culture. But I don't know that it's moving the needle on so many of the issues that people ostensibly care about when they talk about you know, civil liberties or criminal justice or any of these other areas where equity and identity stuff have become the principal framing mechanisms for like every story. Hmm. 
That's so interesting. I mean, I guess I look at it from the perspective of someone who has just represented people who generally are ignored or despised. And so when I was talking to you about sort of like this, this rush to embrace Amber Heard in my head, I was thinking about what I thought was a lot of performance around Time's Up where you had these like, you know, actresses trotting out these kind of almost trophy activist folks on the red carpet, mm -hmm. sort of like taking them to an event and being like, see, I'm really down with the cause because I like, you know, lent my limo or shared it with this person for the evening and brought them along as my plus one. So limos are nice. So it's cool that you're featuring me. I mean, yeah, sure. I, I, so I guess, I, I mean, I hear you. I understand what you're saying. And I feel like saying that something like gender violence can can only be experienced by one group or or you know police violence can only be experienced by one group is is reductive and polarizing and not a good way to engender support but i think at the same time what i'm speaking about when i see this rush to pay this rich person millions mm -hmm. of dollars to ghostwrite and an opinion to make her a figurehead for a movement is more erasure of the kinds of people that I represent. And so, you know, that makes mm -hmm. me angry, which is not to say I don't see your point because obviously I, I do and I respect what you're saying. That's where that comment was coming from, if that yeah, makes any no, sense. No, that makes sense. I, I actually, I, I, you know, I want to agree with Lauren some, in a, in a narrow sense that if, if, actually in a narrow sense, if you broadened it and spoke about class, for instance, I would mm -hmm. probably be um, more in agreement because, you know, too. when you have these, millionaire um actresses who are you know fantastically beautiful and make an obscene amount of money for crappy uh -huh. films you know in, in in particularly when it comes to this trial i mean the way people are handling this and looking at it it's it's entertainment you know it's it's you know tabloid fodder and did you see this did you see that and people showing clips of you know kind of funny witnesses making funny comments and the rest of it and it kind of minimizes everything doesn't it i mean it makes it makes it this this you know a current affair which i think is a show that's probably not on anymore is it i love that you just referred to that show yeah yeah oh my yeah, god i think bill o'reilly was one of the hosts by the way sure was yeah amazing yeah that was a bill o'reilly and 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 um a lot of Australian journalists from News International. But th that's what it's kind of become. And, you know, I understand why they do it, because they think there's more visibility and people will pay attention to her. But it is, you know, more interesting when you don't think of it as something distant and as something that happens in Hollywood amongst people that are incredibly rich and wealthy. And then it happens maybe next door to you or in the house down from you and in your own community. It seems rather separate when you have some, you know, only people that are saying, you know, look, I had a lot of conversation with people, particularly women, and I'm remembering mm. one conversation in particular about the Harvey Weinstein thing and that couldn't really relate to the fact that this was all like going up to somebody's hotel room in this beautiful, luxurious place in L.A. trying to get a role. It just didn't make sense and resonate to them. Just like, oh, that's how you this is how that all works. And rather than saying, you know, there's somebody down the street, it was the victim of uh, abuse by their spouse and they don't have a ton of money and the cops come and do nothing about it. That's also an interesting story. And it's probably one that's more relatable to almost everybody. Mm -hmm. But obviously ACLU, beyond trying to get into fashionable causes, wants to have uh, famous people as their figureheads, which I think is kind of gross. Yeah, it is kind of gross. I guess maybe this is too tangential to what you're saying, but I've been thinking about it a lot recently and, you know, I teach at the University of San Francisco. It's very much a vocational law school. We, we train people to be lawyers. They're not going to go out and like be the next senator. They populate the criminal courts, the prosecutors, their DAs, their, their judges, their civil litigators. 
we train people to go out and practice. And my students are majority minority, majority women, majority working class and first gen. And when I watch all these free speech arguments playing out, I think about what I'm teaching my students in, in class and that's how to litigate. And, you know, it's a blood sport in there. And to send people into the courtroom with this idea that if someone speaks to you in a certain way, that's going to be hate speech mm -hmm. and you're going to storm off or like you're not going to be able to rally mm -hmm. and fight back is is so misguided. And it worries me a lot. It worries me a lot because I think about my students and what they're going into. I think about myself when I was a federal public defender when I was 27 years old and the abuse that was heaped on me by prosecutors and judges and even sometimes my own clients. And if I had thought about that speech as, as violence, if I had thought about myself as someone who, you know, was entitled to just sort of leave or think about the harm that it was doing to me versus the cause that I was there to fight for, it would have been highly mm -hmm. detrimental. And I just worry, like, who are we training? I mean, I want my students to go in there and I want them to fight really hard. And you know what? It's, it's, violent in there. And I mean that rhetorically. I mean that like you have to be fast on your feet. You have to absorb a lot of pain because in the end of the day, it's not about you and your feelings. It's mm. about your client. That's why you're there. And I worry that we're not educating students in a way that's going to allow them to be that fighter for whatever cause it is. You know, in my case, it's my law students and they're going to be, they're going to be prosecuting people and defending people mostly. Right. And in both of those roles, they need to take a lot of punishment and it can't be about them. And that concerns me, this idea that it is all about you and it is all about your feelings, because it's not. And that's not to say it isn't unpleasant and it isn't to say that the system can't be made better, but it's not going to improve if you just leave when you feel offended. Can I ask a, a, you know, a tangential question on your tangent? When you have first-generation immigrant students, I mean, C Camille just mentioned the People versus Larry Flint. Who was it directed by? Milos Forman, Milos Forman. A, a Czech dissident who would go to jail if he, you know, made a film that the authorities didn't like when it was under Soviet occupation. I mean, you probably have students, you know, Americans are great at like flattening people and saying Latinx or Hispanic and not understanding that there's a little bit of diversity in South America, Central America, <laughs> well, the, et cetera. Americans don't really um, say Latinx. Yeah, like almost different. no one does. Nobody, yeah, well, nobody in the so-called Latinx <laughs> community says Latinx. Um, but, you know, you have people from Venezuela, people from Nicaragua, people from Cuba, people from China um, must walk into your class in these, these roiling debates about free speech. I imagine they would think that they were kind of comic in, uh, considering they come from countries where speech is actually suppressed and people actually go to jail for, for prohibited speech. It's hard to paint my students with a broad brush because they're so diverse. And we have people who lean conservative and we have people, the kind of people you described, we have people who are very, very progressive. But I think on the whole, they smell bullshit and they're not, the, I That's mean, reassuring. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being too Pollyannish about them because, because I'm, I'm too close to the whole situation, but I just feel like they're there to learn and they're there to go out and and fight for their clients. And I feel like generally speaking, that's the focus of what we're doing, whether I'm teaching them criminal procedure or we're practicing cross-examination or we're talking about wrongful convictions. I feel like generally the focus is, yeah, they bring their personal experience to it, but they're also focused on, okay, like what am I gonna do when I'm going out there and actually living in the real world? Which is what I would hope most people would be thinking. And I agree with you that like, 
I'm older than all of you by probably a generation, but I, I didn't that. ask myself. No, I'm like a million years old, but I didn't ask myself, you know, I do what is this how <laughs> your skin is amazing. Oh my God, I want I want your your shitty yeah. web camera is not picking up this porcelain skin. It's oh my god. No, it's the diabetes. No, it's, it just I've sort of been makes thinking about it the whole together. time. It's very distracting. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just I wasn't really asking myself those questions. You know, am I so offended that I feel like I can't participate anymore? Like I just, you know, I was just hoping to to get through the whole process so that I could go out and be a real lawyer. And I don't know, whatever your profession or your goal, isn't that kind of the point? Yeah. Hmm. Quick uh, question. Um, uh, who should be, what organization out there um, do you think is, uh, could possibly be that rights-based, rights-first politics last, or at least not second or third organization on principle and why is it the foundation for individual <laughs> yes. rights and education? <laughs> well, it's, it's so funny. As you're talking, I'm like, what does FIRE stand for? Because <laughs> I'm like, I, I think get it that wrong they have, most of the time. Yeah, no, you did a great job and you Thank scared you. me, um, which is good because I was having trouble with individual rights before. and education. Uh, I'm, I'm on the board, so I, I know. I, <laughs> they've stepped into the breach, right? Yeah. I mean, I think they have. And I guess the question is, are progressive groups going to feel like they can turn to them for help? They've been very good mm -hmm. with progressive uh, uh, cases, too, of, of progressives having their speech, you know, particularly like Palestinian <laughs> groups, et cetera. They've, they've been, been pretty even handed on this stuff. And from my own like dorky professor perspective, we have something called the Academic Freedom Alliance and a bunch of law professors across the political spectrum have joined it. And every time there's a free speech controversy, we issue a statement saying that we, you know, support the person's right to speak. I can tell by all of your expressions that you read our statements every day and take them really seriously. So I can tell we're yep. having a huge yeah. impact. And that makes me feel really good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So the acronym doesn't start like <laughs> fires. So, well, Laura, we we have so much more to talk about uh, at a later date. There's so many things I'd love to get into with you. But uh, again, I know you've got a flight to catch very very early. Hopefully, we can we can talk some more um, about the rest of your work. Yeah, let's come back. Yeah, we need you to come back and talk about how such a sensible person who seemed very sensible can be a communist, <laughs> and yep. we want you to answer our McCarthyite charges that you, Laura Bazelon. <laughs> Or a red. But what, what, I, what I actually want to ask about is uh, Chase Boudin. Hold on. Let, let her... Hold on. Laura, Laura's going to respond to that charge. Okay. So I. So Camille, yeah, and on the Chase Boudin front, I think you should have me back. You should put me in the dunk tank, and you should just throw questions at me. Yes. And if I don't answer to your satisfaction, you press a button and down. I don't yeah. know. No, no. yeah. Pop right back up. But you know what? I don't think I'm going to go down. I think I Ooh. think even me up against the three of you, I feel like it'll be a good time. So you're a lawyer and you're just a bunch of idiots. <laughs> yeah. So that's no, that's no, yeah. you're a bunch of smart people. But yes, I am a savvy lawyer. So Sounds have good. me back and we can talk. Yeah. My first question would be Is Bill Ayers your favorite <laughs> academic or the best academic? And then you would say, wait, there's no and then you'd be in the tank. Yeah. Right? <laughs> With your Che t-shirt on and your David Gilbert tattoo. I know what's going on with you. I am going to come back with all of those things, but fortunately you've given me time to ponder that answer. Yeah. I mean, you're probably prepared because in San Francisco, you're probably pretty right wing. <laughs> I, it's, it's funny, but it's kind of true. I mean, the fact that I'm even talking to yeah, you. Yeah, it's a problem. Yes. 
else, doesn't it? I know. Right? right. That I would even come on the show and speak to you shows you how far to the right I am. Well, well, listen up, Pinkos in San Francisco. We loathe her. She's the worst. So stop, you know, surrounding her house like she's in the Supreme Court. Leave her alone. Lord. All right, gentlemen. It's been an experience. Thank you very much. Have a great night. I like her. I think I want to be in a relationship with Laura Baslon. Do you think I'm going to be in a relationship? I could tell. I could tell. There's a lot of good energy. stuff that uh, we left on the cutting room floor because we weren't recording it. When I said, can we be in a relationship? And she said, can I pepper spray you through the computer? And I said, I don't know if the technology exists, but give it a try. Um, I could could assume assume that we're maybe broken up now. uh, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, she reminds me in some ways, by the way, of um, mm. another Laura, uh, Laura Kipnis. Um, mm-hmm. f- familiar vibe in that sense that Laura Kipnis wrote a book about um, the university and, and, and her trials and, and travails when she wrote something about uh, her class. I think that was essentially what started it. It and, basically and, was rung up with the same Title IX thing, yeah, but yeah. not because she was accused, you know, uh, quasi credibly of sexual assault, but because she just wrote a thing. Like, yeah. And there was, I mean, I think conversations about sex and, you know, she's like of a generation, like a sex positive feminist type and uh, read her book though, about this, because the first half is about her, um, her trial and her difficulties at Northwestern. I believe mm-hmm. the second half of the book is what's really fascinating there was a guy, a professor at Northwestern, who was accused, me too, run out of the university, ended up, you know, not teaching, living in a small town in Mexico, uh, having left the country. And I read about his case in the New York Times and uh, said, I remember saying to myself, reading that, you know, there's a lot of kind of dodgy cases here. This one strikes me as as pretty open and shut. Uh, I think she thought the same thing, but uh, they were colleagues, didn't, I don't think really knew each other. And he sent her a bunch of stuff when she was going through it. And she did an investigation into his case, uh, which is the second half of the book, uh, which is totally fascinating. And the guy clearly got totally railroaded. And it is, you know, and Kipnis is a a lefty too. I mean, she's not a, a political person really, or like a right winger, but, uh, but, but a fantastic, fantastic book. I don't remember the name offhand, but I'm going to look it up because it's really good. So it reminds anyway, me also can... that, um, uh, speaking of the same broad issue about title nine and, uh, and injustices that came up, don't use the word broad. Thank you. Yeah, um, that's, uh, Emily Yoff with a, with a Y wrote a, yeah. a pretty great piece, I believe for the Atlantic, uh, back in the day, uh, about just looking at the types of people who Laura, uh, who we just had on represent in those cases, but who are the ones who were accused um, uh, uh, on on these sexual assault cases and were not particularly well suited to defend themselves and found themselves on the butt end of some injustices? It's foreign students, right? So like it's like you you're you're from Africa and you're or you're from uh, different parts of Asia or wherever, and you don't you know there might be a cultural misunderstanding. Um, and the, the numbers were just really disproportionate. It wasn't guys named Chad who were on the, you know, lacrosse team. That was not the, the standard person who was accused of these things and who suffered from them. Uh, check that out and also check out Kathy Young wrote a piece, uh, under my editorship, um, for reason in 2014 or 15, it was one of the more successful pieces, uh, cover story about that. Uh, but just the the injustices brought out about that Title IX stuff. And it, it really is a shame that um, 
it was so hard for people to admit that Betsy DeVos had it right. Donald yeah. Trump had it right. And they yeah. had it right because they Betsy DeVos, in her case, paid attention to this because she actually has a background in the area in which she was a appointed secretary of education. But because she became this hate figure on the left, there's just sort of no way for like a good progressive organization or a person to admit any of that. It's like you've lost the plot. I think I mentioned I think I mentioned this maybe on a members only podcast, but a friend of mine who is uh, a very funny, very smart guy, and I think a listener to this podcast um, had suggested one time at his organization that uh, they do a, a segment on Trump called He's Got a Point. <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, the guy's an insane person, but periodically, as in the DeVos thing, he's got a point. Uh, the Laura Kipnis book, by the way, is called Unwanted Advances, and I can't recommend it highly enough because uh, it's very funny, too. She's a very funny writer, a very lively writer. And uh, to Laura Bazelon's point about, um, you know, particularly oftentimes minorities getting caught up in this is not is not actually focused on there is a documentary that widely praised that is um fantastically dishonest uh, called the hunting ground and i think oh, emily yeah. yaffe wrote about that too as did elizabeth like, nolan uh brown uh, spectacularly yes. for a reason yeah if you looked and i remember watching it and looking into it uh because i had like a screener copy and like pausing it and looking into every case and finding out that there was so much more. And it was that guy, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, who I think um, later made some other um, silly documentaries. I don't know which ones, but uh, but yeah, that that one is is uh, is really ridiculous. Um, so anyway, let's go on to you know more important things. We should uh, probably do a little bit of housekeeping, right? Since we didn't at, at the top. Camille, is there something you want to tell our treasured free subscriber or listeners or just people who are listening through their various devices uh about that they're uh, not going to the live show <laughs> you're super not going to the live show <laughs> yeah you, you could have we, if you subscribed we didn't tell you about it because you didn't subscribe we told subscribers well we we did we did tell you about it we did tell you about it and we mentioned that there was going to be a show yeah. we just by the time we got around to recording a show and announcing that there were tickets like the part where we were supposed to do that like right now like the show sold out within about 12 hours <laughs> of the thing going live going live the show was pretty much sold out subscribers first because that's part of yeah. the deal of being a paying a subscriber is that you get in the front of the line um so we yeah. like all right let's you have it and man they snapped it up we there's a lot of like treasured listeners including subscribers who just didn't move fast enough and now they're all scrambling yeah. and stuff jumping into my dms begging begging for tickets there's a lot of y'all there's a lot of y'all and look i'm just not gonna be able to help most of you like at the fire marshal will shut us down we were already moved into a, a, a venue almost double the size of the one that we used the last time we did a show in new mm -hmm. york um, and apparently that's not enough for you people. You just want more and more. The great thing about selling out to subscribers is you really know you're going to have a friendly audience. <laughs> <laughs> Should we talk about like the, the special no. guest who's coming? No. Is I mean, he confirmed? Okay. Well, it's sold out. What the fuck does it, it matter mean, now? One, one of them. One, one of them, them is confirmed. I'm working on. No, the other yeah. one we just went out to. I mean, we, if we get the two of yeah. them, my God. That'd be great. Yeah. I think oh, leaving, leaving guessing and then also might be a okay. pretty fun in-store uh, surprise. He's a controversial chap. 
uh, uh, from from New York. That's all I want to say. Controversial yeah. Yeah. chap from New York. And and <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if you guessed that we are interviewing on stage in New York, Woody Allen, Lightly. you are correct. <laughs> no, that's not true. Sorry, I would love to. Spike Lee and Woody Allen. I mean, would yeah. actually be a good pairing. Well, there's a Woody Allen connection actually. There's another hand for you. Sure. You uh, yeah. Moynihan, you would just have to do the whole. Uh, interview in Woody Allen voice, like you'd be like an Owen Wilson character in one of his late movies, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or Sean yeah. Penn, you know, like, or uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh, who was in um, too, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was in a Woody Allen movie where he just played Woody Allen, which I imagine as Woody Allen the director must have been pretty annoying because uh, it was a black and white movie with Charlize Theron or Theron or whatever her name is. That's all I remember. But he was like, you know, walking around being this like, you know, guy. And it's like, you're from Belfast, aren't you? <laughs> That's all I was thinking the whole time. So anyway, but yeah, you uh, missed that. But by the way, convert, can, you're, you're on the free feed. That's when I do my Sam Harris impression. If you're listening to this now, you're on the free feed. Because, um, you know, I am on the free maybe. feed there. But uh, maybe. The wide release episode show up, can show up on both, but yes. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the ones who are paying, another <laughs> pay. So convert yeah. that um, and get all the good stuff. And uh, pretty soon, we're doing uh, one of our our uh, live uh, on online things too, right? Yeah, the Sunday mm -hmm. live stream, yeah. the second Sunday of every month, and we're counting this coming Sunday as the second Sunday, just because uh, it was our first month. We started on Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, we got a little late um, jump on this. So car. this that's for the uh, the uh, uh, founding member, the uh, Never Fly Coach OGs. We used to, to be called thing. Never Fly Coach. No, yeah. No, they, uh, there's still some kind of internal called, yeah. way that they're still called that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and some people did, and this is very important to, to recognize that as you're uh, filling in the number for the founding member that defaults to 300 a year, but you can erase that and change that. And there's some people who are like, I'm going to change that to my $50 a month uh, legacy yeah. a number. Some people even want to. <laughs> so what Matt is telling you, you can change it to a higher number. More. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can go even higher than that. You can go even yeah. higher that. I want you to give until it hurts. Yeah. I don't see why you should. Yeah. We Listen, we, we come out here pretty much every week. Pretty much every week. And I mean, we just, we give. Well, we do every week. We give. Yeah. Why don't you give? Yeah. The collection and probably why don't is. You give? For the cost of a cup of coffee, mm. you scumbags. I think we should just shut down the free thing entirely. Stop it. No, honestly, what are you freeloaders? Talk about Sam Harris. Well, we'll do. We'll give you the first 20 minutes. But he does the thing where, where I was, uh, Joe, that he says, like, you know, you know, if you, if you email me at this email, yeah. you can't afford it, we'll give it to that. you. That is yeah. communism, and we're not going to do it. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's Sorry. right. I'm not for that. When On the last, says, just no, email us, and we will give you uh -uh. something free, yeah, that's not going to happen. Sorry. We, yeah, we, no. That was I, tried in Eastern Europe, and it didn't work. <laughs> you read a really sweet like email on the Members Only uh, podcast that we released earlier this week uh, from a Montreal student, you know, his law student, and just like it's little bit too much for him can we can we help the brother out my god Moynihan and Camille were just brutal oh yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah he's a, he was huh. a student and he had no money and, uh, and not I was sympathetic hands yeah. and feet you can pay handle you can find a way I was sympathetic we find a yeah. way I mean I did you say on the scroll you earn that yeah. money you earn that money you bring it back home yeah <laughs> <laughs> fucking Bishop Don Juan over here <laughs> to all those hoes in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, no, we were we were pretty straightforward and said, um, you know, you got to earn it. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have everything I wanted when I was in college either. Yeah, that's you right. Know, you got to you got to build right. up to Sacrifice. Yeah, something. cut off Netflix. What are you doing? Watching right. bad vegan five hundred times? Cut it off. 
Nobody Come wants on, to man. see that. Turn it off. Come on, man. Anyway, <laughs> I should have her on, by the way. Ben, email me <laughs> at the, uh, what is it? Um, we the fifth at substack.com. If yep. you believe that uh, we should have the band vegan on, uh, Sarna, um, and uh, talk about that wild, wild documentary. Because I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it. And I've been, we've been in contact. So I think, uh, think maybe, maybe we should do a special uh, Patreon only where, where she explains what happened. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch the documentary. It's Chris Smith who did the Firefest documentary, did American Movie, his first one, which is amazing. Oh, wow. uh, it is, uh, it's uh, a wild ride and, and, and worth watching. So and it's, my recommendation. Yeah. And also just the speed at which that show sold out um, suggests to us that there might be a little bit of a market out there. Um, so um, it encourages us to do that type of behavior. So subscribing to us and also being quick on the draw when we send subscribers an email saying, hey, here's the link. Um, is uh, it, it encourages us to do more of this stuff. So please encourage us. Other stuff, Other stuff. happening in the universe. Um, we, we mentioned briefly in that, in that pre previous conversation um, the abortion circumstances that are playing out on Capitol Hill. Um, we talked last week on the Members Only podcast, although I think that was unlocked, wasn't nope. it? No. Did everybody have no, that? No. no. no? Oh, Damon God, Root. We, you're missing we out. We kept Damon Root. Our conversation with Damon Root um, about the abortion situation um, is a must listen. He's so smart. It's high quality, high quality stuff. So, so you you want to find that? I'm embarrassed when he's on because he's so smart about this stuff. He's very yeah, good. He's very, very good. good. Straight yeah. to the point. This week, um, we see things playing out on on Capitol Hill. Democrats trying to to find a way to pass a piece of legislation that would actually safeguard abortion rights. Which, as Damon pointed out. Um, we've kind of been depending on in this country the Roe decision to provide uh, a protection, a guarantee of um, abortion rights in this country. And the reality is that there are some challenges there um, and there are some sub meaningful legal questions about the way in which that was decided. And there is consternation even uh, on the part of jurists who are inclined towards abortion, who would support that sort of policy, who acknowledge that the the current circumstance that we still find ourselves under, because that that decision that was written um, is not a firm, final decision. This was you know preliminary, and we don't actually know how things will pan out. But either way, there's been a need for there to actually be some sort of federal protection um, of abortion enshrined in law beyond the constitutional provisions that existed, um, or at least that were kind of hacked into existence by Roe. Democrats this week tried to make good on that, so to speak, and managed to pass the House. And then when it got to the Senate, uh, Chuck Schumer decided that a particular version of this was going to be the one that would be voted on this week. And it died. Joe Manchin just now in the hallways uh, describing his decision to oppose it. Let's watch. The bill we have today to vote on, the Women's Health Protection Act, and I respect people who support, but don't make no mistake, it is not Roe v. Wade codification. It's an expansion. It wipes 500, 500 state laws off the books. It expands abortion. And with that, that's not where we are today. We should not be dividing this country further than we're already divided. And it's, it's really the, the, the politics of Congress that's dividing the country. It's not the people. They t they're telling us what they want. And uh, it's just disappointing that uh, we're going to be voting on a piece of legislation, which I will not vote for today. Even if the, the legislation that Mikowski was pushing that would have 
probably been able to get mansion support um and that would have delivered probably just one more republican vote so you get 52 instead of 49 that's still not enough to overcome a republican filibuster which was guaranteed to happen here but at a minimum it actually makes it more honest when one is going to say well look republicans they they just are unwilling to 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 come to the table to have a conversation like we're we're all we're trying to do is defend the status quo on abortion instead they decided to try and reach for something that seems to be a, a meaningful step beyond what might actually be defensible in the minds of most americans i don't know it seems i'm i'm inclined to to agree with joe manchin um about this at least in terms of just kind of the political strategy here i just love uh, elizabeth warren afterwards after the vote saying yeah that's why we need filibuster reform it's like what Mm-hmm. What well, you, you lost? Best, yeah, that's... you lost a majority vote. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. fifty-one. You had forty-nine. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't the filibuster. Like at least they could have like tried to pass a law that would have made the filibuster. Uh, I don't know, in play in some way. But, well, you just uh, say things now, Matt. I mean, it's Putin's inflation. You know, I mean, you just kind of make things up and you hope that people report them. The one thing I would I would strenuously disagree with Manchin on is uh, this idea that it's Congress that it's dividing the country. Yeah. It's a cheap mm-hmm. tactic and stupid. And, and the people who are in there, um, you know, voting for these things, uh, formulating these bills are doing what they are supposed to do. That's why they're there. And their constituents can vote them out if they so choose. Um, I don't believe that the actual process of, of governing is dividing the country. Divided government is good. It always has been good and it continues to be good. But, um, you know, in, in this case, the thing that, you know, I think this era is going to be marked by a lot of people looking back at progressive overreach. And there's been times of conservative overreach uh, that we all know and can, can think about and people don't really dispute. Um, because of the, there's so many people in the kind of media industrial complex that agree with that, the drift of the party. I don't think it's going to get uh, as much, you know, credence as the as conservative overreach has. But you know, you see this in a lot of places. I mean, the, the AOCs of the world, uh, you know, losing more than they're winning, but still having this strange hold over the party, it seems, and particularly the president. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, Manchin, the thing that people talk about, um, Kirsten Sinema and, and Manchin, it's the same thing all the time. These people aren't Democrats. They're, it's like, no, 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 no. If you want to talk about the way politics used to work is that there mm-hmm. were people in parties, you know, from, um, you know, Rockefeller Republicans to Taftian Republicans to Reagan Republicans, you know, uh, th- there's a there's a, a large scope of people in every party. And that should always be the case. But I don't understand what they would want. I mean, what was what what was Trump in West Virginia? Plus how many? An insane number, an insane number, a billion. It's like a plus 34 Republican. It's so crazy. And so you're going to like run Joe Manchin out of town. And who do you think he's going to be replaced with? I'm sorry, like, you know, some Chairman Mao type guy who's like, you know, you have to collectivize (laughs) the coal in West Virginia. It's like these people you know, you're lucky to have someone that votes with you sometimes and you just want it all and you want it all now. And the anger that I saw, um, you know, predictable, the anger at Manchin um, from the political classes, from other other people in the Democratic Party. And of course, the Eric Idle called Twitter. him a twat. Monty Python's Eric, uh, Eric Idle said, you, does he live in America? <laughs> no, 
Uh, I don't. Well, does he? Uh, they, they maybe he does. Uh, maybe he does. Uh, he's like I know John Cleese has uh, chimed in on some political climate stuff denying twat. That's what he said. <laughs> that was his reaction to Joe Manchin. I thought it was pretty harsh. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just I think Eric Idle would win way. an election and uh, in West Virginia. <laughs> There was a description of the, the kind of deal making that was taking place with um, the original draft of this this legislation that I thought was really funny. It was in the New York Times and they described um, them trying to make the bill more palatable to moderate lawmakers in both parties. Um, this is from the New York Times. Oh, yeah. They stripped out a lengthy series of findings, including passages that referred to abortion restrictions as, quote, a tool of gender oppression. Sure. Unquote. Also scraped was a section clarifying that. While the bill referred to women, it meant to protect the rights of, quote, every person capable of becoming pregnant, unquote, including transgender men and non-binary individuals. There is a sense in which even in the drafting of the legislation, like you can see like all of the, the sort of culture war shenanigans playing out. And it's interesting. I mean, to the extent they were trying to do this to appeal to moderates, they knew that there was no way to get the two Republicans in the Senate on board just by removing that stuff. That suggests that even within their caucus, like there are sane Democrats who read this stuff and say, what are you people doing? What is that even in there so for? So crazy. Like I get that when I, what I just said of, you know, people are there to do, do their jobs and to reflect what their constituents want. But at the same time, that that is with the caveat of like, you're trying to win too. And whoever drafted that draft should be, you know, frog marched out of Washington as somebody who's bad at politics. Because if you have to take that stuff out, you're not thinking about Joe Manchin. Mm -hmm. You're literally not thinking about anybody other than, you know, uh, Ayanna Presley or something. I mean, this is crazy stuff. It's you have to get out. And it doesn't matter if you agree with it. I'm not asking people to say that this is right or wrong. Just saying that practical politics, even including that in a draft, is completely dopey. I mean, who does this? It's ridiculous. Um, the uh, uh, the punchline that Camille left out when he was talking about the ACLU tweet earlier with Laura, um, uh, you know, like uh, listing all these different categories of people who are disproportionately harmed yeah. by abortion uh -huh. restrictions. What was left out of that of that list? Ladies, we we women. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah. like actually, the people who are like disproportionately affected by yes. abortion restrictions, like criminalizing yeah. stuff, mm -hmm. like you can't maybe travel over here. In yeah. the case of Oklahoma, some people have actually served jail time for miscarriage. <clears throat> this is not mm -hmm. like this is not just like some kind of yeah. There's crazy some crazy stuff out conspiracy there. Conspiracy yeah. That's yeah, the yeah, law sure. that ha is happening right now. Um. Uh. And, but yeah, they couldn't uh, get themselves to say uh, to say women. I. You know. But, but Matt, that do is you believe that that's. I mean, you think that that's actually because nobody wants to say it. They don't want to get in hot water by saying women. Yeah, or or just whatever you know, right, yeah. twenty four year old intern is is running the uh, the social media thing. It's crazy. It's Mad Libs progressivism, which is you know you take Twitter, which already is just like two percent of the population, and then there's and it's way disproportionately uh, progressive kind of elite class. Like the numbers of it skew so heavily. They're the only district in the country that votes as reliably. Uh, super left as Twitter is Washington, D.C. It's the District of Columbia. Like it yeah. is so uh, uh, it, it's a fisheye lens to look at anything in the country. But no, I it's think an, it's an Iraqi election under Saddam Hussein. It's like 98 percent vote. But for I one think party. it's a truly a one party state. It's one, it's, state. Uh, <laughs> one party district. The the kind of ridiculous political overreach that's happening right now is easy to find. 
in mm-hmm. the kind of uh, Democrat and left of center uh, reaction and overreaction in, in certain ways. But like the material stuff that is that is affecting people's life is a conservative overreaction. It's the the underlying law in Mississippi saying that you can't terminate a pre- pregnancy after 15 weeks. That changes the basic term of Roe versus Wade, right? The Roe versus Wade, like the general consensus was that it's around 20, 22, 24 weeks. That's kind of where all abortion restrictions were were getting into in the states when you once you're starting to be restrictive. Mississippi ratcheted that thing up. Texas with its crazy, you know, well you can rat out your neighbor uh ban. That those bits of extremism and in Oklahoma where miscarriages literally uh can be can trigger criminality in these cases. Those are new, they're late they're affecting actual people in in material ways and it's coming from the right the right mm-hmm. is emboldened right now on uh restricting abortions yeah. um yeah. and and in the way and that is going to affect lives though we had talked uh, previously um uh about uh the concept of being not necessarily pro-choice or pro-life or anti either one of those things but in my mm. case it's it's uh anti-prohibition which is a, an approach i take to drugs, to immigration and to abortion, it's sort of, is there an activity that millions of people do and they're going to do no matter what? Okay, so if, if there is such an activity and history throughout humanity has shown us that this thing is going to happen, regardless of what we do, regardless if we go full fucking Taliban in any direction on, on a question, um, people are still gonna find a way to do X. Um, if that is true, then my approach to it, regardless of what I think about the underlying activity, is man probably shouldn't th- be throwing people in jail uh, for this type of thing. And I don't think, and I, I watch the pro-life discourse pretty closely, including at uh, at Reason, where I work. Um, you know, we have a couple of pro-life staffers, uh, Liz Wolf and Stephanie Slade, write about it, and then also people like Jacob Sullum, who rightly points out that the underlying Roe law is, is a dog's breakfast. And it's, a, it's a, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 1992 was talking about how shitty the Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. opinion was. Um, right. Um, but like our friend, uh, our friend Barry Weiss has somebody on her podcast, I think a Yale law professor, somebody I hadn't heard of who is uh, pro-choice and who uh, is anti-Roe. And I yeah. think that's on mm-hmm. the latest edition, a, which I haven't listened to. So. It's a totally sensible position. But the thing that I'm not seeing a lot of, of, you know, a wind in their sails, abortion prohibitionists like like grapple with is like, OK, you won. What is the regime that you want? Who goes to jail? Who mm-hmm. fucking goes to jail? That's because right. Because they terminated a pregnancy. Who's going to do that? Um, who is going to hold the proverbial gun to someone's head and say, sorry, there's a lot of demand for adoptions right there. You got to carry that fucker to term. Um, and sorry for my crass language, but like uh, that they need to work that through because people mm-hmm. are going to understandably receive this new reality. If in, indeed it comes and it looks like that it's going to come uh, according to the, the political reporting from today and from Washington Post previously, there hasn't been another draft since the initial February draft. Usually there's horse trading back and forth so far as, from what we know. There hasn't been a new kind of draft that would indicate such horse trading is, is taking place so far. Um, then 
uh, there's going to be a lot of new regimes. There's, as Damon Root uh, said to us previously, there's all these trigger laws that immediately mm-hmm. go into effect in a lot of yes. places. Yeah. So yeah, you can already see the wrangling happening in a lot of states. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, yes, the reaction is hysterical. Yes, I love you guys for the video today, of course, with the with the Margaret Atwood people in their little red costumes were like walking up and down in front of the house of, I don't know, Brett Kavanaugh or somebody uh, or Amy Coney, Coney Barrett. Um, but, and, and it's, and it's, it's ridiculous and Democrats are, are screwing it up right and left, but the, the sort of aggress that's happening right now and the restriction of rights, if you think that women have some right to terminate a pregnancy and there's people who don't, and I understand that and, and respect where that comes from, the logic of it, um, uh, it, it, that is the thing that's material and with us right now. And it's serious. Well. I want to I want to take a step a step back though, Matt, because there is something that I, I was reading. There's a piece in Politico um, where Susan Collins said that um, she is still having conversations with Tim Kaine, a Democrat from of Virginia, um, about trying to figure out some sort of compromise legislation. And uh, the Politico piece reads: uh, Democrats have largely dismissed Colin Murkowski, Murkowski's legislation as too weak to protect abortion rights if Roe fails. Many in Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's caucus also argue that if the bill can't clear a GOP filibuster anyway, there's no point in voting on a narrower version of the bill. But Kane disagrees. And Kane's disagreement is based on this, this belief that the, the alternate bill that effectively would enshrine like the status quo in law and offer people at least a regime of protection of abortion rights that is is a bit firmer than what currently exists, just depend just depending on Supreme Court jurisprudence alone. Um, even if it meant that you still have to fight some of those battles over different state laws, like that that victory of getting a, across the fifty vote margin might actually be an indicate enough to indicate to members of the Supreme Court that this is where you know the American people really want to come out on this. That could produce a different outcome socially. I mean, at a minimum, that's that's a pretty strong indication. And I, I think you're right, man. I mean, I I think of like the job of a legislature and the the many places where we see them kick the can down the road, shirk their responsibilities and duties. Or just just yesterday when we were talking on the Patreon, not the Patreon, excuse me, just yesterday <laughs> when we were talking on the members only uh, release, we talked about the AUMF um, that that's been talked about for Ukraine for Biden. And how AUMFs have been this marvelous way for Congress to evade its responsibility to, for the, the kind of decision to take the country to war, to just leave it up to someone else who can be blamed if things go badly. It's authorization, um, and, authorization of use of military force. And, and here again, I think in a very similar fashion, like Democrats are taking kind of the, the easy way to the worst possible defeat so that Mm -hmm. they have an obvious election issue that they can work on. And it's not obvious to me that they're really willing to make like the hard arguments to try and actually win over sophisticated voters. There's part of me that, that wonders if they don't want to lose a battle like this, given the current political environment. I mean, what's the classic, uh, classic uh, statement? Like, do you want, uh, do you want a, a, a victory or do you want an issue? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, and, especially like all the abortion rights organizations coming out and explicitly condemning the the Collins bill, saying that it doesn't go far enough. Um, and that that part of the challenge are things that would effectively disqualify Roe. <laughs> like the fact that there are conversations about viability 
like in the law is viewed as a fundamental defect. This That makes it like a non-starter for these institutions. And it's kind of like, well, wait a minute. I thought the concern was that, you know, women won't be able to get abortions close to home and people might die because they can't get access to this kind of treatment when they really, really need it. To the extent that's true, I don't see how any like abortion advocacy organization wouldn't support at a minimum as a stopgap measure, given the urgent circumstances here, piece of compromise legislation that at least can manage to get some Republican support in the Senate, that is almost certainly more in line with the perspective of the average American than uh, an outright ban on abortion, which is the sort of thing that you might see come come into existence in a number of states um, if, in fact, um, the, the draft um, holds. It's another example of how we've let national politics kind of poison our approach to things in that, like, uh, if federal legislators are talking about X, Obamacare is an example of this, right? You could have made Obamacare, like, let's blow up the stupid World War II era um, uh, tying your health insurance to your job. That was a that was totally mm-hmm. a product of of wage controls during World War II. Um, and everybody who's looked at the issue says, oh, that's dumb to blow that up so that individuals can have their own. They, they could have done something like that. Instead, they're like, let's use whatever we do on the federal level as crafting everything about people's health insurance. And of course, it became completely unwieldy. And you can't you're thinking of the federal government as offense rather than defense. Um, if you looked at the federal, like think of everything that people said, um, even hysterically perhaps about what happens if Rose overturned in the way that uh, Samuel Alito has proposed. People are like, Hey, you know, this could roll back gay rights. This could roll back even loving versus Virginia into interracial marriage and stuff. All right. So like, let's give your fears a law's name. I'm scared. This will happen. Uh, act of 2022 mm-hmm. and and it's like <laughs> don't arrest people for miscarriages uh interracial marriage is totally cool uh it, like put them all in a law and like like propose it and pass it and you would get you could conceivably get of course anything with abortion and you know good luck trying to get 60. it's gonna be hard it's gonna be hard yeah. but like you could you could work on that in terms of mm-hmm. like it's a defense it's not telling every state what to do what what the exact things are but it can, in theory, protect us against the worst case scenario that people are talking about. Um, but that's not the way that people approach politics in Washington. They approach it as right. we have to write the totalizing thing for the country. And since most most consumers consume politics on this very nationalized way, um, there is no kind of uh, feedback loop that is helpful uh, on this, I'm afraid. So uh, it, it incentivizes politicians to have an issue rather than a solution. Well, I wonder if we shouldn't talk about the economy a little bit, um, the the absolutely insane inflation numbers, which um, we were we were trading some text messages earlier today and the reporting that was being done on inflation in, in a number of instances would suggest, you know, the inflation seems to be backing off a little bit. It's it's finally fallen for the first time. And CNN. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> I watched for 20 minutes of CNN during lunch and it was like, yeah, uh, and the, the strongest they could come up was like, well. Maybe this wasn't the uh, it, 
this wasn't the perfect news, but this was really, really good news. <laughs> it's like because it's the second highest instead of the highest inflation number in 30 years um, means that they, they can spin it this way. They had a reporter. What's his name? Jim Scudo or something like that, um, who had a, a, a tweet out of basically saying, you know, we're taking a breather from <laughs> inflation, which everyone yeah, immediately no. beat him up on. Like, what <laughs> are you talking about? That's not a top story on The New York Times. This is the top story in The New York Times and the subhead. And I'm going to compare this to another headline that came out at um, within about 20 minutes on a different website. The New York Times headline was U.S. inflation, while still high, <laughs> is expected <laughs> to have cooled in April. And then this, this is the subhead. It may be decelerating from March's 8.5% pace, but it's still running at about the fastest rate in four decades. Here's the latest on the data. It's cooled in the headline, the fastest in in four decades. CNBC, who knows a little bit more about this than than, uh, the New York Times does, the exact same time had a headline that said, inflation barreled ahead at 8.3% in April from a year ago, remaining near 40-year highs. That's an accurate headline that yeah. gives you everything you need to know in a very succinct headline. And it's not trying to tell you that um, things are going, that it's cooled. I mean, it is not, it, you know, if your fever goes from 105 degrees to 104 degrees, <laughs> you're not feeling good. It's not, you're not ready to go back to work. I've cooled, I've cooled <laughs> off a bit. I'm 104. I'm fine. Like, no, no, you should go to the hospital. I think you're really sick. No, no, I'm cooling off. I mean, this kind yeah. of stuff is totally but 100, 103, 104 is almost in the reins of like realm of reasonable. Yeah, I think exactly. in order to have an apt analogy yeah, here, we have to be like, yeah, he has a temperature of like 109, yes. 115 yeah. or his, something. His it's organs have stopped functioning. Yeah. Um, like, I think it still got sepsis. Yeah. It's probably going to die. Well, it's but, it's you know, funny being, being outside of the city <laughs> has really demonstrated for me, the real effects of, uh, of inflation. I mean, one thing, of course, is, is having a car now and seeing the gas prices, et cetera, but that's a, that's a number of different factors. But inflation, mm-hmm. you go to a bodega in New York City and there's like a box of Triscuits and it's like the uh, $12. And it's like, what? Are you fucking kidding? It's like two bucks at Target. And it's everything is insane. But when you go to places that are kind of normal, and you watch those prices creeping up every time. I went to um, a grocery store the other day. This is true. And there was a special <laughs> on avocados, two for $7. Oh. And I was like, I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> two for $7? That can't be right. Now, granted, I assume that this is a grocery store. So, I mean, it's a normal grocery store. It's not one of those like Citarella or fancy, fancy kind of things. But, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's really, you know, a pocketbook issue which I see every time I go out to the store. I mean, it's not, nobody gives a shit about these fucking New York Times headlines where they're spinning for the administration. I know that if this was two mm. months straight of them reporting, you know, Trump numbers, or even if, you know, Romney had become president, that would not sound like this at all. But nobody yeah. cares, which I love about the media and the media class is that they're talking to each other. They're trying to tell themselves that they're, they're like Stuart Smalley. I'm good enough. Mm. I'm smart enough and God dang it, people like me and they're staring in the mirror because nobody else fucking cares. And the reason they don't is because they're actually paying for things. And it, you know, you go into the city and you see people doing their shopping at expensive like bodegas. We call them, we, in New York City, call them Korean bodegas. Like the really, the fancy ones are always the Korean bodegas. And you're like, how are these people? It's so expensive. And it's like, oh, they make a ton of money. And those are the people also writing your headlines about the effects of inflation. 
you know it, I know it, anybody who goes to the store and does their grocery shopping knows it, is that this is not cooling off at all. And, you know, well, the other person talking about by um, talking about inflation this week, though, is Joe Biden, who gave oh, no. a speech um, in which he described inflation as his number one domestic policy issue, um, where he also went on to explain that higher inflation was due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and of course, the Russian Russian president Did he said was spending during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, just the pandemic? No, what he. What what he actually he just said the COVID nineteen pandemic, which is interesting. Partially true, you know, <laughs> but not <laughs> um, the whole story. But but he went on to add the following: It's not because of spending, Biden. That's, that's literally insane. Which which is it's, totally it's, it's insane. Crazy. There's no economist totally alive that would think that. I mean, um, he also lied about a number of things. It's um, not because of spending. They were paying down the deficit. But that's the main thing that we should probably talk about. Wait, here, he said the it's not because of spending. Unwilling to, yes, he's explicitly said it's not because of spending and went on to defend his exorbitant spending um, while he's been in office in just the past you know, year and a half or so. Why is not, the Fed year and a raising interest months. rates? Why? What's the idea well, behind not, that? Not, not by that much. Not by that much. But the idea yeah. is to, let's use the language of the New York Times headline, to uh, mm -hmm. cool off an overheated economy. It's to pre prevent people from spending as much as they're currently spending. Why are people spending a lot more now during a pandemic? Is it just because they're not going out um, as usual as they had been in you know, 2019 or something? Well, that's a little bit of it. But is it the fact that Matt Welch one time came on this podcast mm -hmm. and said, I have Matt Welch, <laughs> who has a, a salary and uh, money and is, uh, you know, he's doing okay. He's got a couple salaries. He's got a couple salaries. Yeah. That he got a WIC card, it had two thousand dollars on it. Man, I bought I mean, so much booze for that stuff. No, I didn't I, actually. You can't. But, you uh, can't. Wanted to, tried to. No, you gotta like buy food. You probably got I bought sold mixers. on, on... A, lot, a lot of mixers. Yeah, I mean, you're not. Your kids yeah. aren't gonna die if you don't get that two thousand dollar WIC card. No, How and, many and other people in your universe got those. Everyone who has a kid in the New York City school district. And then also, let's not forget the $300 per kid <laughs> uh, little little uh, bonus from the uh -huh. rebate, prebate from the IRS. Uh, that that happened. Extended, extended, extended. Yeah. To everyone. And like, I didn't, I didn't need it. Sure, sure, sure didn't need it at all. Um, and like, we have money and... It, you know the the theory of your spending has nothing to do with it, man. Theory mm. of of giving people money money uh, from the federal government is this is what happens. This is what you should do when demand has collapsed. The problem with the economy, as far as I could tell, and you guys are fancier than I am about this stuff, is uh, <laughs> it's not like two thousand at late two thousand eight and early two thousand nine when like mm -hmm. everything dried up. And there wasn't mm -hmm. demand. People weren't spending money. They're freaked out. They're like holding on to their savings. <clears> and <throat> also the economy was super tanked. Um, so, you know, the, the theory then was you had to do that. You had to give money, stimulus to people to make that happen. We, demand was not the problem. We, uh, we, the demand was not the problem at the end of a pandemic when the unemployment rate, um, you know, granted a lot of people have left the, uh, the workforce, is really down to historic lows. People have much better balance sheets than they've had in a long time. And we gave them all more money. That was like, mm -hmm. that's not, that's not the theory. You didn't do the theory. You just gave people more money and you did it in such a way that like right now, seriously, people are having conversations in Washington. Like we've run out of COVID money. 
there's like mm. no money left for like tests or helping anybody or doing any they, basic they relief. still haven't spent all the money that has been allocated no. through those various those various programs no still haven't spent all that money it's hard to spend it that and, fast. and we haven't even started to talk about all of the fraud that is baked oh right into like the ppp program well if we want to tie i mean this is incredible like, but if you want to tie the two stories together that we were talking about before we came on which was uh crypto and stock market stock market stuff um there's many yeah. many many studies uh on this i'm just going to uh, give you one from cnbc um people earning between thirty-five thousand dollars in $75,000 annually, that's not a lot of money, people, uh, traded mm. stocks about 90% more than the week prior to receiving their stimulus check. So <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wow. the, the crypto collapse, the crypto, the, the stock market collapse, you know, it's kind of similar to what's happening with inflation in the sense that all this money was pumped into those markets that was government uh -huh. money. I mean, there are study after study of the percentage of people, particularly, you know, in younger age groups, you know, people from like 18 to, to 35 or something that use their stimulus checks to buy crypto, crypto. Tons of people did it. Like I'm getting free money. Like it does no skin off my back. If I lose it, I might as well try to double it. And a lot of people did actually, a lot of people did. I mean, that was, there was a, there was a bull market to end all bull markets. I mean, it does well for a lot of people's retirement funds and the rest of it, but it's inevitably the bubble is going to burst and it has, and there's nothing surprising. I mean, Amazon's, uh, you know, stock is now below, it's back to the same kind of in the same region as before the pandemic. And obviously Amazon was you know, doing gangbusters business during the pandemic because people couldn't leave their houses right um you know all the stuff and is... a lot of the changes i think in shopping um habits were were probably pretty durable like there there has to be an expectation that they will continue to be dominant in ways yeah in the same way people aren't going back to the before. office right you know it's like you yeah. can but they're not going to you know and this is it this is like this is the government pumping money into people's hands when demand was exceptionally high supply was limited because demand was so high and there was so much money in the economy and you know it's all the, it's it's quite complicated but at the end of the day to say the point being is that you can you can judge this on you know 85% of it is because of spending 40% 20% 10% you can make those arguments to, but to say it's not about spending is um can we call that misinformation is that misinformation because his own board that is run by uh, the girl from the musical theater department in the uh you know skokie school district can she <laughs> can she tell us that that is uh accurate information because i think that that it would qualify in my world as misinformation it's obviously not true another thing that you can do uh when evaluating all of the biden administration's policies and and proposals mm. thereof is just run it through. I mean, you, you quoted him, uh, Camila, saying uh, inflation is his number one thing. Really, number one thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, how does making, um, you know, lumber from Canada more expensive? How does that yeah. help the number one thing? How about forgiving yeah. student loans? How does forgiving student loans make that can have an inflationary effect? Of course, it, of course it does. Yeah. Every single policy should be seen. If that, he, he said it. It's the number one thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah so yeah. let's measure all of these things. He said in his State of the Union address that um, all of the stuff in the infrastructure uh, bill, I mean, trillions of dollars out there, it's going to be American made, right? Like we're going to do American. So 
by making everything American made, by sourcing everything as American raw materials and then America production afterwards. Impossible. Is that, first of all, is it possible? Second no. of all, um, if, if it is possible, is it, how is that going to help inflation? Is that going to make things it, more it's expensive? Not, it's going to be more expensive. Or I mean, and less I, you expensive. Know, I mean, comparative advantage is something that maybe they want to look into is that, you know, yeah. this developed <laughs> as a society in the past 20 years of doing certain things very well and other things not so well. And the idea was like Trump. I mean, I did a film, like a, a, a like a full special for HBO on the Trump uh, trade policy. And, uh, you know, did, is my internet going to, oh, sorry. It's back. Yeah, it's a little bit patchy. You're, you're still here. Right, sorry, little, it, it just shaky. cut out for a second. Um, yeah, I did a film for HBO on Trump's trade policy, and it was knocking Trump's trade policy for this particular reason, is the idea that we can do these things, first of all, is delusional. Mm -hmm. And like Trump was saying, like, <clears throat> we're going to make the iPhones in America. It's like, well, no, you can't do that. Because even if those, you know, you can assemble them here, and that's what essentially what people are talking about, it's assembling them here. But you cannot actually do this stuff in America. And it also is dumb. I mean, so you have to think about uh, from a political perspective, what do you, mm -hmm. what do you want to do? You want to put money in ha the hands of certain people, right? By forgiving student loans. You want, that might have an inflationary effect. And if it's number, if your number one thing is inflation, you might want to look at that. And then if, you, so let's do that. Say, pre pretend that everybody gets money back and that's not going to be true at all. It's going to actually annoy a lot of people who actually were responsible and paid their student loans. And, you know, obviously we know where this debt disproportionately falls and it falls on people that actually have the money to repay it. If you do that, right, and everybody gets money back in their hands and that the inflation is still at 8%, 8.5%, what is the dominant idea when you go into the voting booth? I got a little bit of money in my pocket, yay, and now everything's much more expensive. You know, my gas is $5 a gallon. I mean, we're now, right now, gas prices right now, are the highest they've been in good no God knows how long. I think it's, I mean in this gas spike and this it's gone down a little bit we're now like approaching you know high four dollars a gallon four and a half four sixty something like that was the last i paid and you know filling up a car is all of a sudden 75 dollars. that's very different the beginning of the pandemic when it was 30. i mean it really was i mean it was incredibly cheap and, and oil prices were cheap so if you're looking at this purely from a practical political perspective you have to realize that that obviously it's number one um, because this is why you're going to lose. And this is why, you know, on the generic ballot, Democrats are getting stomped, absolutely stomped for this one reason. It's not about Afghanistan and the, you know, clunky pullout there or America's policy towards Ukraine or, you know, anything, none of that stuff makes a difference. It's one issue. And if it's, if it's going to be your focus, you should do something about it. What are you doing? You're doing the opposite. You're doing yeah. things that will actually well, make well, it worse. Well, something you've mentioned in the past is like all of the the Trump tariffs that that we've talked about, like the steel tariffs, and like Biden could do something about those things tomorrow by himself. Yeah, tomorrow, like on his own. The whole point, and has not. Nope. No, the only one which he's, is which is bizarre. The only one he's proposed no, that not. I know of. It's not bizarre because he ran. It's on, a left wing policy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but uh, no, like his his approach towards trade was I'll do Trump, but smarter in a good democratic way. Um, but the only one that, that I've seen, and I don't study it that closely, so I'm, I might be leaving something out, um, is that very recently, like last week, is like, okay, we will uh, suspend uh, steel tariffs from Ukraine for one year. Yeah, for one correct. year. Thanks. Yeah. Like we're, we're, what, two and a half months into the war? Into like a war? 
Like we're going to send $40 billion into this country. Suddenly we're doing a lend lease program, um, uh, which is a lot of money. And we're now just now like thinking about maybe we're not going to penalize them for selling us cheap steel. What the living fuck? If, if either inflation or I don't know, helping out Ukraine, um, uh, is a priority here. None of that makes sense. And that's all inherited when from Mary Trump. Paul steelworks are being bombed every day. <laughs> steelworks. That's the thing. That's the whole linchpin of like the South and the East of the entire yes. fucking it's Russian the advance. Yeah. They want to link up the, you know, Russia to the entire black sea in the South. And they kind of got a, a pretty good little, you know, they're, they're losing in many ways, there, yeah. but they yeah. got a, they got a, a, a band there. And Mariupol is the last place, the steel factory where there is any kind of like serious resistance to that. And we're like, yeah, you know, I think we might have a one year temporary moratorium of Ukrainian steel tariffs. Motherfucker. I mean, people are not serious about inflation, about Ukraine. Ultimately, that's not a serious approach. You should, to the extent that, that a president of the United States has the power to snap his fingers, boom, and change a thing. That's where you have it. You have it on immigration, you have it on trade, and you have it on foreign policy and the use of force. He could have done a lot of that. He hasn't done it. We, we had a listener a while ago that emailed us and particularly me and not attacking me, but said, you know, you're an ardent free trader. You've been talking about this quite a bit. Can you grapple with the stuff that, you know, people like David Otter, the MIT economist, has produced saying that, you know, free trade has actually hurt uh, mainstream and mainstream. This, this is the kind of, you know, professional version of the Michael Moore argument that's, you know, the, the downsized this kind of thing. And, you know, there's evidence of that. And there's people that actually take uh, David Otter's stuff very, very seriously, and it should be taken seriously. Um, so how does one deal with it? Well, the one thing I can tell you, and we, could, we should actually have that conversation, maybe on a, a members only one, I don't want to bore the fuck out of people with it. But the thing that, that should actually be dealt with is the fact that when David Otter and people like this say, it has had an appreciable effect on blue collar jobs in America. Okay. And we're not talking about, you know, blue collar people now getting cheaper products and living better because they, they can get things that aren't, you know, prohibitively expensive that they can afford on their salaries. Regardless of that, there's no prescription in any of this stuff. What does one do to, 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 to rectify this problem? Well, it, it's not the, the, look at the record of the Trump tariffs and why the Biden administration is not, not doubling down and saying, this is a disaster is for political purposes because no one is sitting there saying, yeah, this worked. Because what does it mean mm. for that stuff to work? That a couple, you know, I went to a couple of plants that reopened because of it. You know, an aluminum smelter, um, a nail factory, which by the way, then ultimately had problems because the American production of nails needed products from Mexico. And those products in Mexico that they needed, they couldn't get. Uh, because of the tariffs, it became too expensive. So American stuff that's made in America does often rely upon stuff from other countries. And people don't often think about these things. But this is, none of this has worked. And then in the context of inflation, I mean, no one is actually talking about real economics here. It's all, you know, voodoo economics mm -hmm. to quote George H.W. Bush and say that this is literally gesture politics while people cannot afford the price at the pump are, you know, <clears throat> grimacing when they mm -hmm. get their uh, grocery bill and they're scanning it out and like, wait, hundred bucks, this was 75, like six months ago, a year ago. 
And all we're talking about is these on the margin political things that might make these stupid fucking parties that are worthless, you know, win, you know, 0.3% more votes. It's, it's, it's embarrassing. More importantly, if I, Oh, go ahead. No, no, go. No, I was just going to ask you, Camille, how much uh, has the uh, crypto wipeout uh, uh, ruined your retirement plans? Oh, it hasn't ruined my retirement. It has not ruined my retirement plans. My retirement plans do not depend on. Do you want to ask me? (laughs) I know it's bad. (laughs) What's it like over there, NFT bro? No, I don't own any NFTs. (laughs) I I don't own NFTs. Didn't she get gifted some NFTs though? Yeah, I forgot to pick them up though. I don't know where you back. Truck, (laughs) but don't matter now. They're worth a nickel. Doesn't Um, matter now. maybe before we go to the crypto stuff though, I, I, I did like, as, as you guys were talking, like a thought occurred to me that if I were um, a governor from, you know, a, a state that's seen a, a lot of uh, an influx of population over the course of the last couple of years, whose national profile is pretty high, who aspired to find his way into the white house at some point in the near future and knew that there was a potential rival within my own party who, you know, was perhaps vulnerable on some of these issues uh, because he had been responsible for pursuing some of these tariffs that have perhaps not worked out as advertised and might be contributing to the problem with inflation. I might be talking about national policy in that context and trying to bring some attention to a place where the Biden administration is kind of failing miserably right now and being exceedingly dishonest about economic policy. That might be where I'm focusing some attention. Um, But this week, DeSantis, rather than doing something like that, rather than calling for, say, some like bipartisan commission to take a look at inflation and to do something serious about this issue, which is almost certainly having an outsized impact in a place like Florida, which has seen housing prices increase dramatically, which when housing prices are going up, rents are going up as well. And that's people who don't own homes who find themselves in a much more difficult, constrained circumstance as, you know, inflation continues to tick up and up and up. Um, But DeSantis is this week, instead of doing that, consecrating a, a Victims of Communism Day in Florida and ensuring that the curriculum in Florida is mandating that every student on that day, starting next year, um, receives 45 odd minutes of instruction on the awfuls of communism and Mao and Pol Pot and the millions of people that they killed. And if you listen to this podcast at all, you know that we don't have any, any, I think the opposite is that sympathy. We hate those motherfuckers more than anybody. It's bad. It's literally the only podcast that, I mean, like so goes after communists that died a hundred years ago. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I desperately, I want children to understand these things. Um, I also appreciate that this sort of kind of, political posturing and more kind of culture war antics on the part of DeSantis um, are almost certainly not going to ensure that the young pupils who are matriculating through uh, Florida's public school system um, are going to be more likely to have a a deep and abiding understanding of just how awful communism is um, and why, you know, year zero is terrible. My suspicion is that most of them still won't know what any of this stuff is or means. Um, and when I look at things like the, the national assessment for like educational progress, and I check the scores for Florida, and I'm looking at, you know, reading, science, math, 
and I'm looking at the proficiency of students, like whether or not, not that you can do like the basic shit, but whether or not like an eighth grader has like really great like reading comprehension, the numbers are not great. Like something like 60% of the students are not performing at or above grade level. And Florida has been better than most states, both on performance and on the structure of reform, thanks in no small part to uh, you know the the punchline Jeb Bush. He was uh, arguably the most kind of forward-looking uh, education reform governor in the country in the 90s. Um, so like they're not as bad as many other places, but you're right. The culture war juice isn't in that direction. It isn't like saying, hey, are we teaching reading correctly? Which is actually a really active um, thing about er you know early learners um, right now. Um, very different ideas about it. I think they're going to change up in New York City entirely that that approach. That's the basic shit. And it's not nearly as exciting as passing a law, um, whether it's DeSantis uh, talking about victims of communism uh, or Camille, you were passing around earlier. Um, California is going to make an ethnic studies or an ethnic and gender studies requirement requirement. Yeah. And that's that's old. I mean, that's that's from from. Yeah, that's from 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe 21. High school, high school. So, People like, say, yeah, I mean, it's... I remember my classes in high school. They were English, history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there was the chemistry where the, you know that you could steal weed off the teacher when she wasn't looking because it was in her desk. Um, like, they were like the big, you know, the calculus. That it was those things. They they had big names. And sociology was about as weird as it got. And that was a really great class in my, my high school. But like, it's not, they're not electives at a, at a college for the most part, right? Like they're just big capital letter classes. And now we're going to get a, an, a, a, now we apparently have been having an ethnic studies requirement as well. This is, uh, um, it's losing the plot and it's a way of having a press conference and, and emoting to the camera it's uh it's it's not helping the problem they're um DeSantis is like a hollywood person in the sense that you have a hit you know your first one's a big hit and that is the kind of rufo stuff crt stuff <laughs> and you're like man this I, is his, really big his first big hit his first big hit was keeping schools open which was great and important and it made him that, different that was actually practical and but I'm saying yeah. the first big hit mm -hmm. in the culture war stuff is that, yeah. and it's a, yeah. and it is the, you know, but it is like the Hollywood producer who, you know, says that American Pie movie did really well. <laughs> Let's make a parent American Pie too. And now we're on, uh, and I just looked this up. There's now American Pie presents Bandcamp. American <laughs> Pie presents Beta House. American really? Pie, <laughs> Pie presents The Book of Love. 2020 American <laughs> pie presents girls rule <laughs> governor DeSantis is in American pie territory here is that let's do communism now let's do it's like guys just because the first one was a hit doesn't mean all the subsequent ones anyone's going to care about you know if this is where we've American pied the culture war in Florida here I yeah. hate communists more than any of you fucking losers listening to this podcast right now I hate all of you you're the worst because you like, <laughs> I'm joking. I love you all. But honestly, I, this is, I mean, you can look over my shoulder. Yeah. All of those yeah. books are, yeah. you can find the black book of communism on the show. All of Paul Hollander's book, books about communism, Richard Pipes's book, for Christ's sake, Robert Conquest, et cetera. You can't beat me on this thing. 
But when I, I don't also like this thing that I care so much about and that I've devoted so much of my time to because I'm a loser and a weirdo is making this just some sort of kind of dumb political issue that you don't ultimately care about. And you're trying to make some point. I'm like, you get some, you pick up some Cuban votes, you presume that you don't need anyway, but you know, you're going to solidify your base there. And nationally, you're going to get on, you know, this is all playing for the Newsmax crowd, for the Fox crowd, et cetera. And like, yeah, no, he's doing this. Oh, great. I'm going to praise you. No, no. I think that this stuff should be taught. I don't think it should be used as a political issue to get you closer to the White House. I think it's cynical. I think it's gross. And I think it's not what the people of Florida need right now is not uh, him grandstanding <laughs> about, about, you know, Enver Hosha in Albania. Come on. <laughs> in, in every area of our politics, it's just empty carbs. And bullshit, it's a lot of empty like, carbs all the way yeah. around. Like it's all performative nonsense. Like, and, and I mean, I, I mentioned earlier the numbers and I, I just pulled them up again, like uh, grade eight reading proficiency in 2019, 34% performing at or above grade level. Grade eight science proficiency, 2015, it's the most recent year, 33% at or above proficiency. Is it, this uh, is in Florida? 31% at or above is proficiency. This is national yeah, Florida. And, Florida. And this, is, this is Florida in particular. Like, so I, they can't read the Communist granted, Manifesto, but they know it exists. <laughs> and granted, at or above the proficient standard is better than the basic standard. And if we were just going by the basic standard, the numbers would be higher but we would still be talking about 30 or 40% of the students in the school system who are perhaps not able to do math, science, or reading at a level that one would expect from someone of their age. Um, and I'm, I'm focusing on eighth grade and not 12th grade because by 12th grade, like the kids who are in the worst shape just drop the fuck out and they kind of they kind of do some stat juking for you. Like all of these people are selling you snake oil. They are bullshitting the hell out of you and they are not making any material impact on, on any of the important issues that matter. Like we may in fact be headed for a genuine recession. Mm -hmm. And it certainly doesn't feel like Republicans have any kind of serious policy solutions for any of the pressing like issues of the day beyond culture war idiocy. And even there, I don't think that they're succeeding. Like every one of their successes in my, in my estimation is almost certainly going to be a, a failure of some sort that backfires. Their success will be calling it, rebranding it as a Biden inflation. Like they got the hashtag just right. It's the Biden inflation. Um, as if well, to scrub Donald Trump out of that picture because he opened up the spigot during COVID and prior to COVID, he was a much more free spending president than Barack mm -hmm. Obama um, uh, on a, on a per year basis. Uh, and then COVID comes around it's like, whoop, let's just get it all out there. Um, so uh, Republicans are really adept at doing a meme to blame this on Biden. And they've got plenty of material to work with because Biden is awful on this and he looks like Mr. Magoo. And he says shit that isn't true at all. And there's no sense that he actually does believe this is the number one issue. So it'll be helpful in the sort of pendulum swing of politics. But like where the Republican Party is going right now, is that going in a direction that would have anything to do with limiting inflation? No, no they love trade wars. They love government mm -hmm. spending. Or limiting limiting government in any way. They're dumb with now. I mean, into the... To the DeSantis thing, just one final thing is, it, you know, it's always anticipating the email. If somebody says, well, why would you object to somebody who's doing something, making some, you know, forward motion on an issue that you actually care about? And you would probably line up 
with him on that. Um, I mean, just a couple things about that would be the first is I, I think this boomerangs in the end and actually is worse for mm -hmm. the cause mm -hmm. than it is uh, helpful. And I think there's a million ways you can, you can war game that and see why, why that would be the case because you talk about, you know, CRT, I mean, CRT as a real thing, when you're talking about the Kim Kimberly Crenshaw stuff, you can't even actually have the argument about how stupid it is and have like a serious argument about it because it's just now when you mention it, you're one of them. You're, you're, it's, it's very frustrating that if you actually wanted to have a conversation about this. And you see that also in the conversation about political ideology is if there's a new book that comes out mm -hmm. by somebody you know, who's, who writes very seriously about these issues that I've been waiting for, et cetera, it's not the same thing as you know, Mark Levin's last book, which is called American Marxism. And there's a hammer and sickle on the front of it. And that is not the same thing. These are different things. They're very, very different things because Mark Levin is saying, you know, I don't like communism and you're all off base about why, why you don't like it. And you're also doing it in this performative way, whether in this case it's to be, have a Fox news show and sell books or to, you know, advance in the, um, you know, not yet happening uh, presidential primary, which is probably what DeSantis is doing. I mean, either way, it's a political ploy. Mm -hmm. And I just, I kind of react negatively to that. And these things should be taken seriously and not being used as like cheap political gains, uh, cheap political games and, you know, presumably making some political gains actually. But yeah, I mean, it's not the same thing. Yeah. They're very, very different things. You spin this podcast. On you. you spin this podcast back a couple of a couple of moons and in the in the in a height of certain pandemic battles when florida was among the few states that was reopening at a clip that seemed responsible to to the to the hosts who are assembled here and not to yeah. to a number of political commentators who were prognosticating that there would be doom and death and it was all going yeah. to be terrible um and who largely turned out to be exceedingly wrong about that like we applauded mm -hmm. DeSantis for like meaningful leadership there for doing what mattered um, and for doing it in a pretty consistent um, and I think kind of gutsy way. Like it just seemed like the right thing to do, keeping the schools open, but also like keeping businesses open, like actually getting back to work and not just trying to send people checks um, to ameliorate their suffering while you institute bad policies, lockdowns that have increasingly as time goes on been proven to, to have been, uh, an, an expensive overcorrection for a very real and urgent problem, at least a, a number of conditions and circumstances that left us with a great deal of uncertainty about the right thing to do. Like there were risks that had to be taken at, the, at those points in time. And DeSantis did a lot of those things. And I, I suspect for me, there's actually a, a bit of like genuine disappointment. One would hope that you go through the pandemic and you have like these urgent circumstances that demand like real leadership and like clear clarity and focus in order to save people's lives, in order to get back to living life in a normal way, like something, some semblance of good governance. And I, I don't expect much from government, I'll tell you that much, but at a minimum, like someone who seems to have like their shit together, or at least is is kind of moving in a, in a direction that suggests that, that they could get this right. And like America's political class throughout the pandemic, I think failed them almost uniformly. And in, in the sort of sunset of this pandemic, or at least as COVID just becomes endemic and this thing that we have to live with for the rest of our lives and forever maybe, like they are continuing to do so. 
and perhaps doing it in an even more kind of systematic and embarrassing and clumsy way. And it's, it's a bit maddening to watch. Like, I don't even have high expectations for these people, but like, I don't imagine, I don't understand how any of you can, I don't know how you can applaud these people. I don't know how you can have a team. <laughs> I don't know how you can look at either of these two parties and think to yourself, yeah, that's my guy. I mean, he's, he's getting it right. Fuck these people. They suck. No, nobody listening <laughs> to this so podcast terrible. thinks that, Camille, because if you like this podcast, that you have a certain amount of cynicism that means that you <laughs> never, ever get behind a single fucking politician because you know they're all like opportunistic <laughs> scumbags. And like, you know, I remember talking to my... Cynicism. <laughs> skepticism, not cynicism, but it, 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 skepticism and cynicism at a certain point because you can't, you know, I'm, I'm being crushed under the weight of the cynicism. And I remember talking to my daughter when we were having this conversation. I think she was probably nine or something, maybe ten. It was it was fairly recently um, when we were talking about who would want to be president, and I was explaining that you know you never. It's the problem with voting for a president because anybody who would actually want that job is not somebody that you want in that job. And she kind of got it. She's like, yeah, no, that makes sense. That's true. People who would do that are so, you know, off kilter is the, the <laughs> nicest way I can say it because you have to kind of say things in a nice way to and which also, Maybe why Stacey anyway. Abrams makes me uniquely nervous. I've, I've never seen mm -hmm. anyone who wants it more. <laughs> I mean, I have seen women who want it more, but I mean, for politics, I would say that I've never seen somebody who wants it more than Stacey Abrams. Uh, yo. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're on Substack now. Can't get <laughs> oh, shit, this is a public fine. one. Oh shit, this is fine. everywhere. That's Damn totally it. fine. Okay, uh, no, I'll just add fine. that the um, you know the media class that uh, Camille was referencing to has been doing Ugh. a whole bunch of stories recently. Sixty Minutes, uh, New York Times, uh, others, um, kind of noticing that the mental health of kids is really shit um, after <laughs> the last <laughs> two and a <laughs> half years. And I'm grateful for those articles. And I will mm -hmm. also be grateful in the future when people either who were writing articles, I can think of a couple of mm -hmm. reporters in particular who cover education for the New York Times, um, or people who are just participating in public life uh, on uh, on Twitter and, and commenting on things that are not necessarily their coverage areas, um, but who advocated strenuously not just advocated policies that that contributed to this problem um to the disproportionate uh compared to the, all of the rest of the rich world school shutdowns masking policies and stuff like to be clear you still have to wear a mask uh, if you're a four-year-old in new york city everywhere mm. uh there's a congregate mm. setting that still exists um but people who pushed for all of that um and even for people who were right about everything to look back at their pandemic record and take a thoroughgoing, um, uh, you know, self analysis and make it public. I got this right. I got this wrong, especially if in that process um, there were completely overconfident statements of fact and also attempts to portray the people with whom you disagreed about policy as being beyond the pale monsters um, and trying to basically discourage them from public participation. I would like to see more of people examining that. And including in that, I would offer now that we have a website that it's very easy to find everything that we've ever recorded, come at us. So you, you people do anyways, um, but like come <laughs> at us from what we, it's all out there in real time with date stamps on it and stuff. 
Um, and uh, and we're happy to acknowledge. But can I can I error. can I say something about that? Yeah, I don't know about that, Matt. You know why I wouldn't say that? Because I don't <laughs> want, and you don't want, to finish the live show, which is going to be fucking amazing because it's going to be us and Woody Allen. Um, <laughs> I don't want the live show with you know us and Woody Allen and uh, you know Alec Baldwin, whoever's going to be on the yeah. stage. To end, Spike Lee. Spike Lee is going to be there. Um, Harvey Weinstein actually might make an appearance uh, video link. Yeah. Yeah. Very strange. I, we didn't even ask him. He, he contacted us and we said, oh, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no one is canceled in our world. Um, sure. No, you don't want people coming up to you after the show when you're having drinks and saying, uh, you know, in episode 171, oh, no. you said, and I'm just like, you know what? Because I, in person, that's I'm drinking you, now. you're going to get punched in the face. But you, you can go ahead and write an email or a comment. That's fine. I'm going to like treat you like Putin treats Alexei Navalny and like dump poison on you or something. <laughs> just, you're going to be my Navalny. Oh, so please, please yeah. don't. I, yes. I, I yes. urge you no. don't. Uh, so, hanging out is anyway, not a debate. We should probably go because we, we, we did uh, another podcast prior to this with uh, Laura Basil. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it was the same podcast, but yeah. No, I know. But you, 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 put those things together and it's a fucking bird yeah no it's true like no, fourth we've, hour we've done now. a lot we've done a lot tonight so and i got a, i got a flight to catch tomorrow so i got it and this is free it's super free yeah yeah well it's not it's not free to us and it's it's worth more than gold and uh, seriously like subscribe via the sub stack um you can find I know, us because it isn't free to us we the fifth.com and also we the fifth.substack.com um you should go there you should give us your email address even if you are you know a damn cheapskate who ain't gonna pay us today and you just want to sign up so that you get notifications about all of the things that are going on, uh, including mm -hmm. including some indication that there were tickets available um, and that you could get them if you were a member. Like, please go there. Give us your email address. Stay in touch with us. Um, and uh, and shoot us a mail, by the way, if you bought a ticket and you can't come, because sometimes that happens. And we yeah, have a lot of people yeah. no, that's who sure. are waiting and want and want some uh, extra tickets. Yeah, there, so there is trying a, to, there trying is to a figure it out. List. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, if you will make it to New York next week, we uh, we look forward to to seeing Can't wait you to see there. You. Um, and Can't wait to see you. Um, if you are a patron, well, some of if you, you are a, <laughs> a supporter of this fine <laughs> podcast, we also That's look forward one. to seeing you on the uh, on the live stream the second Sundays. Although we still have to work mm -hmm. out the logistical details, and my wife is traveling this weekend, so I got two babies. So I'm, I'm gonna have to figure Those it babies out. Babies on. So I may be doing it with Cohen in my arms, who will be screaming because he still hates me. It's actually worse. Yeah, yeah. The problem is worse. I didn't mention it, but it's he worse. knows you're an anti-Semite. Well. Um, <laughs> you're a Black Hebrew Israelite, <laughs> and your baby's called Cohen. I have to say that I am. I'm hoping my child is asleep. I am um, been parenting no, uh, solo with a kid for who has COVID for um, is still testing positive seven days later, I guess, or six days later. Uh, tomorrow will be seven days and um, can't go back to COVID school, can't go to gymnastics. What the hell? And, and by the way, I don't think kids can transmit it because I keep on testing negative and like, you know, I, we're, we're pretty close I and I'm you know, zero chilling and on your, the couch together. And your antibodies are, are just too strong to ever get it again. Cause you infect oh, they, they, they truly all are. of <laughs> New York <laughs> with your COVID like in November of yeah. 2019. It's so used to attacking chlamydia that it just is like, what is this? Let's go after this too. <laughs> it really hurts when you breathe. Oh, God. Um, oh, God. Yeah. All right. Bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack. <laughs> <laughs>